Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real, because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we'll look at the fiscal challenges awaiting the winner of the 2024 presidential election, and we'll consider the role of public engagement in helping to bring about solutions. My guest is Mike Murphy, Senior Vice President and Chief of Staff at the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, where he manages policy research analysis on a variety of topics related to the federal budget. Uh, He's also director of Fix Us, a special initiative of the committee that uh, initiates a number of efforts and, and partnerships to better understand the root causes of our nation's divisions and uh, deteriorating political system. Uh, So I may ask uh, Mike what he's found in that. Um, Prior to joining the committee, Mike worked for the Comeback America Initiative, which is a nonprofit founded by David Walker, former Controller General of the United States. And and, uh, Mike received his bachelor's degree of history and political science from the State University of New York at Albany and a master's of public administration at Syracuse University uh, uh, at the Maxwell School of uh, Public Affairs at Syracuse. So with all that, Mike, welcome to Facing the Future. (laughs) Thanks, Bob. Good to be with you. I'd ask you if I left anything out of your bio, but there's one thing I did leave out that I wanted to uh, get to now, and that's it. Back in 2015, um, you and I worked together on a joint project by the Concord Coalition and the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget, called First Budget. And of course, much of that work took place in Iowa and New Hampshire. And our purpose back then was to urge presidential candidates that year to make fiscal responsibility one of their top priorities. We knew it wasn't going to be the only priority, so we didn't even ask for that. We said, at least make it among your top priorities. And we asked them to explain proposals Uh, that they would put in their first budget because the first budget of a presidential administration is often the most impactful. Uh, And of course, we encourage voters to get involved in this and and ask key questions. And Mike, you know, if we thought there were big challenges back then, uh, they've grown even bigger. In fact, I think I was I was looking at some of our old material uh, and the and this was 2015, so I'm not talking ancient history, but the the debt to GDP ratio was 20 well, was uh, 75 percent, mm-hmm. uh, and now it's more like 100 percent. I guess uh, guess it's not surprising that that we're on the road again. And uh, before I bring you into the conversation, one <laughs> one one last introductory thing is, you know, the reason we're doing this uh, this interview this week is that uh, you and I are going to be uh, reuniting for a couple of roadshow events uh, in New Hampshire, one on January 9th at uh, the Paul College of Business at the uh, University of New Hampshire, Durham, 
Uh, that's in conjunction with the Carsey School. That's the evening of, it's like 5.30, and uh, the, 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 the public is welcome, but we'll have a... Um, We'll have a registration link on the Concord Coalition website for people that want to go. And then the next day, we're going to be at Dartmouth at the Rockefeller Center uh, doing a program there again the evening of. And uh, so if anybody's interested in going to those events, go on the Concord Coalition website, ConcordCoalition.org, and look for the registration links. So, Mike, we're on the road again. Uh, let me. Uh, what, what have you been doing since 2015? <laughs> Bob, we've catch, been solving. We've, we've been solving the debt problem. Haven't you noticed? <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. I guess, as you've said, you know, since that you and I spent a lot of time on the road together back in Iowa, New Hampshire, whatever it is, almost eight years ago or so. You know, yeah, the fiscal situation has gotten uh, exponentially worse. Partly, as we all know, like due to drivers that were existing at the time, right? Aging demographics and rising healthcare costs that have just continued to put pressure on the budget. But obviously we've had some big unanticipated things come up that required us to borrow a lot of money, including uh, a pandemic, obviously a few years ago and the economic response to that. That has seriously exacerbated this, the situation that we're in. So what have I been up to? Like you, we've been continuing to try to call attention uh, to, the, to the dangers posed by this fiscal trajectory at the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget. Uh, we do that inside, uh, inside the Beltway in Washington, D.C., trying to work with members of Congress, where we issue lots of analyses that folks can check out on our website at crfb.org. And also, you know, trying to advocate for, for various solutions. Uh, to this, which we'll probably maybe get into in this talk. But I think that um, one of the things that we're doing now is uh, we we have an initiative at the committee called U.S. Budget Watch. And this is a this is an initiative that we do, oh, every four years or so uh, when the presidential campaigns start. And essentially what we do is we we monitor uh, the campaigns. We, we analyze uh, what the different policy proposals are that presidential candidates are putting out. Uh, at some point during the campaigns, what we do typically in the general election, as opposed to the primary, although we have done it in the primary as well, is we will take some side-by-side -side, uh, analyses to kind of look at the candidates and add up all their policies and how much are their policies projected to uh, add to the debt or, or make savings over the next 10 years and issue that in a report uh, during the general election. And we try to work with the media, obviously, to call attention to this. And in the past uh, cycles, including the 2016 one that you mentioned that we worked together on, uh, I've been successful in trying to get these issues covered and uh, asked about in the, in the presidential debates as a result. So that's what we're working on. And as a result, we've solved the debt problem. So now we can move on to other. <laughs> to other. Yes, indeed. Yes. Declare victory and go home. <laughs> it must be difficult analyzing a presidential campaign proposals. Uh, I, I mean, I. I know it is from, <laughs> from uh, attempting to do it myself. And, uh, you know, it just as a, as a framework, before we get into, you know, because we want to talk about the fiscal challenges that, that await, but, but since you bring up Budget Watch, um, when you try to analyze the presidential campaign proposals, they leave a lot of stuff out. So, what kind of assumptions do you make or baseline assumptions or fill in the blank assumptions and, and try to make sure that they're fair? Well, one of the things that we do is, and we do this fairly because we have to obviously uh, across all 
all the candidates, et cetera, is that when we're trying to analyze what their proposals are, we'll try and find what, what is what is publicly available, right? Like on their websites, on their plans, or sometimes from their speeches, and we try to get a sense of what it is. But we reach out to all the campaigns and we establish relationships with the campaign policy staff uh, across the, the campaigns because we want to try and really deeply understand what it is they're talking about. We try not to, right? <laughs> if we can avoid it, right? Try to not to make those types of assumptions. So we'll work with them, try to ask the right questions. What are you actually really talking about here with this policy to give us a sense of what, what it is, right? Um, now, once we take that into account, and then what we do is uh, we do typically, as you know, Bob, like sometimes the policies that people are putting forward are not necessarily new. They might be iterations on other policies that have been kind of put forward in the past, et cetera, or might be similar to a different policy that might be have been proposed in DC or by somebody else, right? And there'll typically be somewhere, some kind of estimate, right? That either we've done or someone else has done that can give us a enough of a understanding of what that what that policy is from a budgetary standpoint. Well, can use off based off of other similar policies, right? And then what the, our uh, public policy team always does is there is inherent uncertainty, right? On um, the impacts of these policies and so, uh, we will often do range range estimates, right? <laughs> of like you know, okay, a low range estimate of the cost or savings of this could be X. High range estimate estimate could be you know Y, and we kind of split the difference a little bit when we're trying to make a sort of point estimate on how much some of these things will be. So that's a little bit of just how we do it. Get detail from them uh, on the campaigns, fill in some fill in some gaps and what they actually mean. Rely on reliable other estimates of kind of similar existing policies, and then uh, make sure we kind of take into account uncertainty on how we do this. I know you you put out in conjunction with that a uh, list of, you know, what constitutes a fiscally responsible campaign proposal. Uh, what, are, what are some of those criteria? If you don't have them right in front of you, I do. I can read them but but what are the uh, what are what are some of the criteria for a fiscally responsible campaign I don't have them right in front of me. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, I, can, I know that one of them is be honest about the problems and I think uh, you've course, mentioned that yeah, yeah. and uh, making deficit reduction a top priority which is similar to 2015 that we did. Exactly. Uh, and you know, putting forward proposals to reduce the debt and pay for new initiatives. Uh, refrain from taking solutions off the table. In other words, you know, saying I will never do X because you don't know what you might want to do in a in a compromise plan. Um, have a plan for dealing with the looming insolvency of the major trust funds, which we'll talk about in oh. another section. Uh, propose solutions to address major expiring provisions, which we will also talk about uh, later. And use honest numbers and refrain from perpetuating budget myths. And I think that that's, that's a good list. And we'll get back to, to those, but we're going to have to take our first break. Now, you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. I'm talking with uh, uh, Mike Murphy. He's uh, chief of staff at the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. And we're talking about the fiscal challenges awaiting the next administration. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. I'm talking with Mike Murphy. He's the uh, 
chief of staff and senior vice president at the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. And we're discussing the fiscal challenges that are facing the next administration. Mike and I are going to be doing a couple of public events uh, coming up on January 9th and 10th at uh, UNH Durham at the Paul College of Business and at Dartmouth University. And we'll if you want to go to either one of those events, go on the Concord Coalition website, concordcoalition.org, and there'll be registration links there. Mike, I thought we should get into some of, talk about some of those fiscal challenges facing the next administration. You know, I've been looking at uh, the, 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 the most recent CBO baseline, Congressional Budget Office puts out a baseline of, you know, where things are going if nothing changes. And it really is the most dire, depressing one that, that I've ever seen. And a couple of key points, annual deficits average almost $2 trillion. It's about $1.8 trillion. Now that's, you know, annual deficits averaging about that. It's just incredible. Yeah. Almost 6% of, uh, of the economy, usually budget deficits are around three, three and a half percent of GDP. So it's like double the, the historic average. So we're not talking about missing by a minor amount here. We're, you know, we're way off track and getting higher. So what about interest? Interest costs become a real factor here because if you're running big debts, you got to pay interest on that debt. Of course, interest rates have gone up recently. We used to be benefiting from dirt cheap interest rates, uh, not so much anymore. And in fact, by I think it's 2031, we'll reach the highest level of interest costs as a share of our GDP ever. So somewhere like 3.4% of GDP. Um, you know, that's, that's a lot. Uh, you know, it's, it's somewhere around, you know, defense spending. How about debt held by the public? Where is that going to be? Well, we're going to set a new record by about 2030 or so, or 2028, somewhere in there, uh, over 100% of GDP, 106% of GDP. That's a, uh, that would be a record. And when you think about like World War II, and <laughs> so like, uh, our our debt to GDP ratio is really that high, and uh, you know it's basically because of a failure to make policy choices, not because of some single major catastrophe. So anyway, and and all of those all of those projections don't account for the fact that we've got a lot of tax cuts that are expiring in 2017. So they're going to have to figure out what to do about that, and it doesn't count for you know more spending on. Um, geopolitical risks in, say, the Middle East or Ukraine, no matter who wins, they are going to be dealing, objectively dealing, with the most difficult budget situation any president has faced. And uh, so maybe you could sort of pick out, because I know I left out a few challenges uh, regarding trust funds and the like. So you know, what, what other challenges are facing the next administration? Let me pick up on that by responding to a broader point you made and then elaborating on some of those challenges going forward. You know, we started our interview, Bob, kind of reflecting on that we've gone, we've come to New Hampshire before, we've come during presidential campaigns before to make arguments about why our fiscal trajectory is unsustainable. And what I've been reflecting on a lot is when we were coming before, eight years ago, 12 years ago, in some instances too, we, these projections were dire then. We saw this coming down the road, right? These, these, these things are driven by factors that we knew about years ago. They're driven by automatic growth in Social Security, Medicare mainly, 
due to an aging population and rising healthcare costs and inadequate revenue stream keeping up with them. And that is leading to a big structural deficit that is coming to fruition really big time now, right? It's like, it's the thing that we were warning about years ago is now really reaching some of its critical point on the ramifications, right? And that's what these numbers are. Now I say all that, not because of a we told you so. <laughs> no, I'm actually not trying to say that at all. I'm trying to actually make that point because it's the reason that we we're making those arguments years ago were you wanted to plan for this. You wanted to be prudent for this. You wanted to be able to lock in some savings to get the compounding working for you in advance of this coming. That's the opportunity that we kind of missed here and is why hopefully, given that the numbers are as dire as they are, we might be able to inspire some people to get it some control over this now. So that's just a point of just kind of reflecting back here. I think in terms of building on what you said about the dire situation we face right now, I mean, you're right. These these numbers are sort of incredibly jarring. And as we talk to, and I know you do too, and we talk to members of Congress about this and their staff, I mean, I think I think these numbers are starting to get so glaring. They're, they're paying attention a little bit more than they were a little while ago. I mean, particularly the interest costs piece here, right? I mean, I think uh, the broader public started to obviously get aware of this in the last year as interest as interest costs uh, uh, started to rise for individual families. I mean, they're rising in a big way for the federal government. I mean, it is the it is the fastest growing line item in the budget. Uh, we're going to spend more on interest than we do in a, in a given year than we do on defense within the next few years. I mean, that's crazy, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. People really realize what that potentially means. I think people can realize that when they kind of compare it to their own dealing with interests, right? And how that can erode one's flexibility and uh, just financial stability, right? And so, so these numbers are jarring. And you're right. It is a. These are just based on the current projections and current law and current policy. Or current law, excuse me. What's on the books? It could actually be worse, right? And I think that the there are big moments coming up here in the next couple of years. You mentioned the tax cuts. So to build on that a little bit, for folks' awareness, is that uh, these are the tax cuts that were enacted in 2017 to make the numbers add up, right? <laughs> to make it uh, seem as that it wasn't adding as much to the deficit. They had to set a bunch of these policies to expire within a few years. And many of them are coming due to expire at the end of 2025. If they were to just extend them all, right? Uh, I think we're estimating others do too. That would add another 3.5 trillion or so to the projected debt over the next 10 years, right? And uh, yeah, it doesn't take uh, an expert in political analysis to know if you're confronted with a situation of extending tax cuts or not, it's going to be a lot of pressure to extend those tax cuts, right? So, so that is a big marker hanging out there. And then I'll give you one more marker hanging out there for the next administration to tackle as they're thinking about all this. Aside from having to deal with the expiration of those tax cuts, they're going to have to deal with raising the debt limit again, right? Yeah. The debt ceiling, as, as listeners may remember from the last year and prior to that, is this fun thing that happens every so often where the government has to raise the legal amount that they can borrow. Um, and it often causes some consternation, to say the least, uh, in D.C. and uh, irresponsible threats of default on said debt. But it also does provide a moment to kind of step back, reflect on what's going on with our fiscal situation. And sometimes people have used the debt ceiling responsibly uh, to take action on it, uh, which they actually, you know, did tie to the debt ceiling this year savings, right, through the Fiscal Responsibility Act, which is important. But this is going to be hanging out there, Bob, for the next president, too. They're going to have to deal with a debt ceiling within their first year. 
These are the things they have to deal with. They're going to have January. A it's yeah, January twenty fifth. Uh, just as uh, just before the next president, uh, and I don't mean uh, I don't mean a different president. <laughs> I mean the next presidential administration will begin on January twentieth, and the debt ceiling springs back to life like Frankenstein. Uh, it's uh, it's currently suspended, which is why they don't need to worry about it. But then it comes back automatically. So you're right about that. And then the one other thing that uh, we haven't mentioned that is truly an, an action forcing event is the exhaustion of the Social Security and Medicare trust funds, uh, which are coming ever, ever closer, I think. And it depends on whether you're looking at the CBO projections or the trustees projections. But uh, Medicare trust uh, trust fund, uh, Medicare Part A trust fund, I think, is insolvent in 2028 or 2030. It's very, very close with the trustees and Social Security. If you're looking at just the OASI uh, is insolvent in the early 2030s. And if if those trust funds actually go insolvent, you would have to have automatic across-the-board benefit cuts and cuts to providers on Medicare. And talk about an action-forcing event. That truly is. And, and so, you know, whoever is elected president is, you know, going to take office in 2025 is going to have a very, very, very short window to deal with these things. And this goes for Congress, too, to try to come up with some solution. And some people say, well, you know, just throw general revenue at it. You know, we, we can always just uh, borrow and, and throw money into the trust funds. There is no legal mechanism to do that. Right. A bill would have to actually be passed to do that. And Social Security reform bills, Medicare reform bills are, are difficult. So that's just another challenge. And we can talk about that some more after the break. But we're going to have to take our second break. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. I'm talking to Mike Murphy, Senior Vice President and Chief of Staff at the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. We're talking about fiscal challenges facing the next administration, and we'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and I'm talking with Mike Murphy, uh, Senior Vice President and Chief of Staff at the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. Mike and I are doing a couple of events together in New Hampshire coming up, and we're, we're concentrating on fiscal challenges facing the next administration. And you know, Mike, uh, when we, we did a, this project together, the, the CRFB and the Concord Coalition back in 2015, 2016, the, we, we talked about how the size of the debt has, has, has exploded since then. And that means that the magnitude of the savings that you need to come up with, either uh, forget about whether it's on the tax or the spending side, just you know, adding it all up has really ballooned. One of the cautions for candidates and the public is casual promises to balance the budget or something like that, or even stabilize the debt to GDP ratio uh, is a, you know, those, those are fiscally responsible goals. But 
you guys at the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget have made some estimates about the magnitude of the budget savings that would be required over 10 years to accomplish those goals. What have you found? Yeah, Bob. So, so we've we've analyzed this, and when you try to put in put in perspective how much savings is going to be necessary to meet various budgetary targets over ten years, uh, the way to easy way to look at this you can look at it in two ways. One is there's often as 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 you know that the one of the things people put out often is we should balance the budget, right? Let's let's, let's balance the budget. Well, uh, we estimate that to, given our fiscal situation, to balance the budget in ten years, right? So by twenty thirty three, would require. $12.7 trillion uh, in savings uh, <laughs> to do that uh, over 10 years. Okay. Uh, now, what if we just tried to, um, you know, we're about almost at about 100% of GDP, right, on, on as a debt to GDP. So we could look at what about meeting a certain debt to GDP target. So if we just try to keep it around, around 100%, you're still going to require about $6 trillion in savings to do that. Now, to put that in perspective, this year, we enacted one of the biggest deficit reduction bills that Congress has done in several years, Fiscal Responsibility Act. That was quite a challenge, right? <laughs> working through the political dynamics to get that bill passed, and they're still working through it now. That was, if you want to be on the optimistic side, maybe $1.3 trillion in savings, right? The 10 years, right? And so, so these are big numbers, right? These are big numbers, and it puts in perspective, this is a big challenge. Now, the, the other thing to, to keep in mind on this is to put when you put these numbers in perspective, what often happens is politicians, uh, certainly people that are running for office, may make broad statements about what they're going to do to solve this uh, without really being honest about the <laughs> feasibility of these things. So, for example, we've run numbers on this, and given what I said about how much it would cost to balance, or how much it would take to balance the budget, uh, if you were going to balance the budget by cutting spending, right, which often people say, I'm going to balance the budget, I'm going to cut spending. Well, what that would require to meet that target, you'd have to cut spending by over 25%, so 26% across the board spending. When has that ever happened? Okay? Now, if you, which is often the case, someone may say, I'm going to cut spending, but I'm not going to, but we're not touching Social Security, we're not touching Medicare, or we're not touching veterans, or we're not touching defense. Okay, <laughs> I'm going to cut spending. I'm going to balance the budget. That would require a 76 percent across the board cut to do that. Okay, so, so if you, it's, I mean, I just think that that's worth repeating because you get this all the time. Is is if you're going to try to balance the budget and do it nothing, nothing but spending cuts, and you're going to exempt Social Security, Defense, Medicare, and veterans. You, you all you need to do is cut the rest of the budget by by about seventy six, eliminate about seventy six percent of the, the the rest of the budget. Now let's try the taxes side, Bob. Right? We've okay. Done, right <laughs> on the taxes side, what often might be the case, we're going to raise taxes. Right? Like this is on one side, they'll maybe raise taxes. Obviously, not as popular as the cutting spending approach. But if you wanted to raise taxes across the board to balance the budget to meet that target over ten years, you have to raise taxes across the board by thirty one percent. Yeah. Okay. Good luck with that happening. But that's a great. That's a great campaign slogan. Maybe. Maybe we could uh, just raise taxes on those above, say, four hundred thousand dollars, because that's what may often be put forward, and you can cover this with the wealthy. But that's not going to work either. You'd have to increase taxes by we estimate over by seventy four percent 
Okay, on these people or for that, that's to, to balance the budget. That that's not going to happen either. So we know what the answer is here. You need to put a lot of things on the table. You can't take anything off the table. It's going to have to be some combination of uh, of spending reductions and uh, revenue increases if you're really going to be honest about solving this problem. And that's what people need to be uh, looking for when they're trying to hold to account uh, the types of things that elected officials and certainly candidates are saying. Well, I think that you raised a a good point with the by citing the Fiscal Responsibility Act, which was the the law that was passed to avoid the, the debt limit uh, problem back in, in the spring of 2023. And, you know, it did on paper have about $1.3 trillion in savings, as you mentioned, but all of it was on the domestic, uh, was on the discretionary spending side because they imposed caps for a couple of years, 24 and 25. And if you extend those out, baseline assumptions over 10 years uh, and, and hold to those numbers, you get a, you know, you get a fairly good amount of savings, plus you got interest uh, savings because you're running sl- slower deficits. But it's nowhere near. Those are easy to, 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 to backtrack on because you're anytime you're trying to get savings from discretionary spending in the future, it's making an assumption and it's dependent upon a future Congress to carry out those assumptions and things get in the way like emergencies, you know, geopolitical issues, pandemics, whatever. Uh, so those are not necessarily reliable savings, even though, you, you know, you don't want you, you do want to to try plugging them in, but they're not reliable. So what was left off the table, to your point, is anything on the mandatory spending side, which is where most of the spending is in the budget on the so-called entitlement programs, Social Security, Medicare, Medicare being the biggest. And and I think the lesson of the Fiscal Responsibility Act is really uh, struggle as you might if, if you're leaving most of the budget off the table trying to close a, you know, a, a gap as big as the one we have is just simply impossible. That's right. I mean, it, the mandatory spending in the budget is upwards of now, I think it's approaching around 70% of the, of the entire budget, right? They, they are arguing when they do the, whatever budget process still exists, Bob, <laughs> when they're trying <laughs> to, <laughs> which isn't much, uh, but when they are trying to debate and argue over the discretionary portion of the budget, which is what, is really funny what most people think of as the core functions of government. They're really only debating over 30%. So they are leaving most of the of the conversation off the table. And, and that is what they're going to have to tackle if they're going to start to make progress, which unfortunately, right, from a political perspective, tends to be the things that are very politically difficult to touch, right? This is Social Security, it's Medicare, and it's raising taxes. You don't make a lot of friends, okay, <laughs> when you start right, right. that. Those things. On the and it's not like uh, discretionary spending savings are like falling off a log either. As we speak, right. there are two looming deadlines for fiscal right. year 2024, which began in October, and they still haven't uh, adopted full year funding. And there's still a possibility of a shutdown for some of the government on January 19th and the rest of it on February 2nd, which appropriately enough is Groundhog Day. We keep doing this over and over again. And so I think somebody with a sense of humor said, let's let's fix February 2nd as the, mm-hmm. the day for a, a, a big shutdown. But 
You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. I'm talking to Mike Murphy. He's Senior Vice President and Chief of Staff at the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. We're talking about future fiscal challenges for the next administration. And we'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. This week, I'm talking with Mike Murphy, Senior Vice President and Chief of Staff at the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. Mike and I have worked together a lot over the years, and we will be working together again on a couple of public events here in uh, in New Hampshire uh, coming up on January 9th and 10th. If you are interested uh, in, uh, in joining us, we're going to be at the, the Paul College of Business uh, on the evening of January 9th and at Dartmouth uh, College of the Rockefeller Center on uh, the evening of January 10th. And if you are interested, uh, you can go on the Concord Coalition website, concordcoalition.org, to look for registration links. Um, you know, Mike, we've been, we've been really depressing our audience today, I guess, and uh, uh, not unusual for us, but look, there must be a way out of this. I mean, are there, are there reasonable solutions to, uh, to these problems. There absolutely are. And it is easy to be depressed when you're confronted with the numbers uh, that this uh, fiscal trajectory uh, portends. But there definitely there's, there's reasons to be hopeful here when it comes to policy to solve this. I mean, let's take, let's take healthcare. So healthcare is because obviously it um, consists of on the federal level, Medicare and Medicaid is a big, big ticket items, obviously, that we've talked about. The uh, there are savings to be had uh, on the healthcare side. There's been a lot of work done uh, on Capitol Hill and by public policy organizations and others to kind of look at how can we uh, tackle healthcare costs at the same time that then has spillover savings to the rest of the economy uh, as well. And look, they're not easy to do. I'm not going to say they're easy to do. There's lots of special interests in healthcare <laughs> that are going to make it make it challenging. But I'll just give you one example that seems to be getting some some traction. So there's a situation in Medicare. If you perform the same procedure at a hospital versus a outpatient uh, clinic, you get paid a lot more for <laughs> the service done at the hospital for a variety of you know uh, reasons in terms of how laws are built over time. But because of the um, uh, the ways that there's been mergers kind of going on, uh, people are kind of gaming the system there a little bit. And, and getting paid a little more. So there's there's movement on Capitol Hill and otherwise to what's called site-neutral payments, okay? And this can generate significant savings, right? If we change to paying site-neutral on it, regardless of the, of the location of care, right? That's just one common sense idea that some special interests might not like, but it can generate savings, right? So there's healthcare savings to be had, Bob, for sure. Social Security. Okay, now Social Security is... As we've talked about, it's the third rail. It's really hard politically. But there are ideas out there on Social Security. When we go out, as you've done so many times over the years, Bob, we do it too. When you go out and engage the public on some solutions to Social Security, there are some common sense things that can be done here to, to um, extend the life of that program, including even on the taxes side, right, which is <laughs> don't talk about taxes. As many people know, taxes, they, start, they stop coming out of people's pay to fund Social Security uh, as a payroll tax cap. It stops. When your income hits about 162 or so thousand dollars a year, 
that's that's because it's sort of tied to what the wage uh, wages are in the economy, and they just haven't adjusted that over the years. So if you bump that up, so some more revenues coming in at the high end, we talk to people all the time. It's a common sense thing. People say, yeah, we should raise that cap some. That generates revenue as well. And there's certainly ways to kind of adjust benefits kind of going forward, right, that slows the growth of the benefits targeted towards maybe the more well-off people on Social Security, right? Um, and just to be clear, this is a nuanced point that's important. Even for them, we're not necessarily talking about cutting their benefits, right? We're talking about slowing the growth of the benefits they otherwise would have gotten in the future, which is actually more than today. So these ideas for Social Security, payroll tax cap targeted towards people at higher end incomes, slowing growth of benefits for those that are well-off, these are common sense things people are talking about. And then on taxes broadly, you can, you can generate more revenue through the tax code. And in a lot of cases, not necessarily by raising tax rates, but by getting rid of a lot of tax deductions, loopholes, credits that create unfair distortions, slow economic growth. So there's policies there too. So there's a lot that can be done, Bob. And now if we want to get into this, there's lots of process things that can be done too on commissions uh, as well. And I think uh, I want to I go there since you've teed up commissions, but uh, just to, to, to emphasize the last point that you made, I think people react uh, very badly to the idea of tax increases because they assume that that means uh, like a, an across the board or a targeted income tax rate. There's a lot of savings that can be had or, or increased revenue that can be had by getting at the so-called tax expenditures, credits, deductions, exclusions, exemptions. Uh, and there's over a trillion of them. It's a huge category of the federal budget. And you don't have to eliminate them, but there's a lot of uh, things that you could do. And, you know, you look at the Simpson-Bowles Commission, they had a uh, they got a lot of their savings by uh, looking at tax expenditures. Uh, I was on a similar commission with the Bipartisan Policy Center led by Alice Rivlin and, and Pete Domenici. Um, and, and we did, too. I mean, you can really get a lot of savings there. They can be bipartisan and they're progressive savings because a lot of the tax expenditures primarily benefit people with the highest incomes. So I think you can put and, and I think you have to put everything on the table, which leads to where you were going there with the commission idea. Um, there have been a lot of commission proposals out there, uh, Mike. Which which ones are you following? There are a lot of commission proposals. And to be clear for people, this is the idea that given the political situation in Washington and how difficult it is to deal with these issues, and frankly, also because the budget process is pretty dysfunctional, that it might make sense to charge a special group of folks to come together, it can be both members of Congress and outside experts that would sit down, be charged with over a multi-month period of time to get together, hold hearings, so be out in the public as well, and then negotiate to come up with a package of savings that can get our fiscal trajectory on a better uh, better track. And there are multiple bills running right now to, to do this uh, that, are, that are working their way through Congress, both in the House and the Senate. On the House, there's a bill to establish a commission that's led by uh, Representatives Bill Huizenga of Michigan, a Republican, and Scott Peters, of a Democrat uh, from California, that would establish such a commission that has about uh, about 20 co-sponsors, evenly divided uh, from, the, from Democrats and Republicans. And there's a parallel, very similar companion bill in the Senate led by Senators Romney and Senators Manchin and a group of 10 uh, bipartisan senators as well 
to establish this commission. And, you know, I think this is a really smart approach and should give people hope. Uh, And it's possible that we could have this included in the upcoming budget deadlines that are near upon us here uh, as well. And one of the reasons I actually think it's a very, very smart approach is that these commissions are set up actually to report not soon. It's going to be reporting around after the election. And that's smart for numerous reasons. But one of the reasons it's smart is the aforementioned debt limit that's coming up in 2025 that you and I talked about earlier uh, in the program. Uh, Wouldn't it be nice if instead of waiting to the last minute to raise the debt limit, if there was a group that came out with a sensible package of savings that people can take a look at, see, and be required to vote on well in advance of that next debt limit spectacle. That would be a really smart thing. And I think the American people would welcome the idea of getting past dysfunction and actually trying to force something that puts these things on the table. So I think the commission is a really smart uh, approach and certainly gives me hope that maybe something can be done. On this yeah, and I think that, uh, you know, uh, the, the proposals that I've seen, we talked to Scott Peters um, on this show, along with uh, Don Bacon and, and Jared Golden, uh, about the, the proposal, uh, their proposal. Uh, Bill Heisinger couldn't couldn't make it on that show. But, but uh, you know, I think that the, the hopeful thing is that it doesn't it, it doesn't. Uh, have a predetermined uh, result, and it doesn't say you have to do it on the spending side or the tax side. You, you, you know, you have it doesn't really have a particular goal in mind. So, I mean, it really doesn't have an ideological agenda, except the agenda is the uh, perfectly reasonable one of trying to improve the, uh, the the fiscal outlook and turn it from unsustainable to something somewhat better. And I think, as you pointed out before, you know, you don't have to solve the whole problem in one fell swoop. I mean, so long as we start making progress, that's right. Uh, you know, that's that's the important thing. So, yeah, I think that a fiscal commission could be, uh, if frankly, seems to be the only thing that might break the uh, the gridlock that you have between the parties right now. So long as everybody's willing to uh, to look at it in good faith and and uh, and you know put all options on the table. And the other the other point, I think you probably agree with this, is whatever they come up with, if they agree to something, it it should be given an up or down vote uh, on the, the House and Senate floor, because there's no point putting people to all that work <laughs> and just to have, you know, report to Congress. And it's just like nothing but a study plan. It, That's it, exactly right, Bob. I'll say one quick thing on that is that the commission in principle is a good idea. The details matter. And the details that matter on how this commission works are it has to be truly bipartisan. So you better have this set up with an equal number of Democrats and Republicans, right? So there's complete buy-in. It matters who will ultimately be appointed to the appointed to the commission so they act in good faith to actually get a solution done. And then the one you just mentioned is these com- and these commission bills that I, I cited, they have um, procedures in place that they will if the commission reports out the recommendations. And legislation, which requires you know a certain amount of them to support it as a majority of support, them, that it does get a guaranteed vote expedited in the House and the Senate, so they can't be stopped. They will have to vote on it, right? So that's really important. I mean, that's really important. Um, and you know, the last thing I'll say on this is there's a lot of this. These issues always get demagogued to death. Uh, a commission gets demagogued to death too, and it's people that say, "No, oh, it's people that are going to go behind closed doors and." There's a, it's just a mechanism to cut Social Security. Don't believe any of that, right? Because it's guaranteed a vote 
they don't have to approve it, right? If it's something that, that Congress isn't going to like, guess what? They're not going to approve it, okay? This isn't like a, this isn't some side way of doing this. This is a way to break the dysfunction. That is what I think most people in this country, no matter what stripe politically you're in, it is the thing that frustrates them beyond anything, beyond the budget issues, is we can't get things done. We're polarized. A commission is a way to help break that gridlock. And that's why I think it's a good idea. Well, Mike, we managed to end on a positive note, and uh, I promise we'll we'll do that when we're on the road together at uh, the Paul College of Business on January 9th and at Dartmouth College on January 10th. Uh, if you want to attend one of those events, uh, please go on the Concord Coalition website, concordcoalition.org, and look for the registration links. That's all the time we have for this week. Uh, I'm Bob Bixby. Thank you for listening. And we'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future. <laughs>